Now, I don't know how many of you, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure you're all faithful followers of the National Theatre and been coming here for many years, but some of you might go back as far as the mid-80s, and I wonder if you could, I'd like you to cast your minds back to 1984, 85, 86, and think about the young man who tore your tickets or <laughs> flogged you an ice cream at the interval. Now, think back, and does this face have an association with those times because Christopher Eccleston, before he became Christopher Eccleston, was a drama student at Central and uh, eking out his uh, grant, no doubt, earned a few bob here at the National Theatre, where we'll be talking later on, of course, about some of the great people he saw on this very stage. It's exciting to, to be here. Now, fortunately, he doesn't have to rely on selling ice creams to make a living anymore. Uh, Let Him Have It was the film, I suppose, was the breakthrough role for Chris. And since then, he's been associated with some of the greatest television and film drama that we've seen in recent years, Crocking On, Cracker, Our Friends in the North, The Mysterious, The Labyrinthine, The Shadow Line, which some of you may have seen last year. I'm still, apparently Stephen Hawking's the only person who could actually understand <laughs> the plot. Perhaps Chris will, be, will help us out. So it's been mainly films and TV, but he has made the occasional foray on the stage. There was a West Yorkshire Playhouse Hamlet, there was Miss Julie at the Haymarket, there was a Dalmar Doll's House, and now he's giving his Creon in Antigone in this very, very stage that we are sitting on today. Creon, a man perhaps who... In, believes in the power of the law with sort of tragic circumstances. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about that. So going back to that time, because a very special time for you as an usher, mm -hmm. coming in every night, seeing... So who, were the, who were the people that you saw and were excited by? Um, Anthony Hopkins stood on this stage doing uh, Lambert LaRue in a play called Pravda by... It was Brenton and Hare. Oh, that's right. Uh, Howard Brenton and David Hare play. And Hopkins was playing a, a kind of car crash between Rupert Murdoch and Robert Maxwell. Um, uh, it, uh, the playwrights were addressing what was going to happen to our press, which has, of course, happened to our press. Um, and he made the character, they made the character South African, made him an outsider who desperately wanted to be accepted into English society, whatever that means. Uh, and I just, I'd, I'd sit... I'd be either at the back there or up there. And the performance, I remember, worked. And, of course, that's the thing about playing this theatre I'm discovering, is that you, you've, got to, you've got to modulate your performance for the people sat here, but they've, they've also got to... It's got to have definition for the people up there. It's an interesting kind of uh, contradiction. And I remember sitting there watching Hopkins and, and up there... And he seemed colossal. He'd come out and he seemed absolutely colossal. And then you'd see him in the canteen eating beans on toast, quite a small <laughs> Welsh guy, really. But he'd come on this stage, and like they said about Olivier, he just became huge. And McKellen in Coriolanus. And in Coriolanus, uh, Peter Hall banked up some seats, and you could get very cheap seats and actually sit on stage. And during the crowd scenes... You you were you were um, you were brought into it. You were, you were actually functioned as the crowd, and my job was to stop American. Uh, there were some you know enthusiastic American gentlemen who would really start to act, and you would have to say, "Excuse me, sir, if you would mind not acting." <laughs> <laughs> I said it to a few of the cast members. <laughs> 
Now, I've just poured you some tea, thank Chris, you very so much. I, hope, I hope you like tea Cheers. first, milk second. I'll just have the black tea. Ah, thank fine, you very much. Fine. Cheers. Okay. So, what, Cheers. I mean, you, come, you grew up in Salford. Now, this is Albert Finney country. It is, yeah. Um, was he a sort of influence on your choice of career? Where did the urge to act come from? Well, I grew up aware of uh, Albert Finney um, because, yeah, we were both born in Salford. Um, <clears throat> and I, I, once I'd made the decision, and the decision was, an, was a random one, really. I wanted to be uh, a footballer, um, like so many in my generation, and I wanted to play central midfield for Manchester United, and I just wasn't good enough. I played for Salford Boys, though, so I played for my city team, but I was slow and ponderous. and <clears throat> So, but there was a definite urge there to show off. You know, there's a football sport, you know, it's, it's, it's exhibitionist and, and creative as well. Um, my brothers were both manual workers, uh, very skilled with their hands. One was an upholsterer, one was a uh, carpenter and shop fitter. And I was terrible with my hands, like my dad, actually. So, and I did not do particularly well academically. I should have done better, but I was unfocused. And I was a bit lost, really. And uh, um, I went to a sixth form college uh, and to resit my O-levels. And I was put in a play there called Lock Up Your Daughters. Uh, <laughs> and I was bitten there. Mm -hmm. And then I did a two-year foundation course at the Salford College of Technology. And when I was there, somebody said to me, well, of course, the next stage is drama school at London. And all I heard was London, because nobody in my family had ever left Salford and Manchester. And I thought that was, a, you know, as a young man, I thought that would be an adventure. I got into a drama school, and um, it was really about going to London and escaping, I suppose, a nine-to-five job which I saw my parents and my brothers doing, and, 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 and being very much influenced by the frustrations they felt in those, in those jobs. Um, but when I got to drama school, that's when I started to take Because I wonder, because your brothers are quite a bit older than you. Yes, eight, um, eight, eight years. years. Eight years. No, they're twin uh, brothers. Twin brothers, yeah. And, uh, you know, Dr. Centre's Teach Yourself Psychiatry, lesson <laughs> one, suggests to me that maybe you know, they were too old for you to play with each other. Yes, And yeah. you were perhaps thrown back on your own resources and thinking about living in the world of the imagination, perhaps. Yes, yeah, I think... As a result. Yeah, I think the fact that they were identical, uh, identical twins and they came as a duo reinforced to me that I was on my own. Yeah, I, I was kind of an only one in an odd way. And um, <clears throat> I did spend a lot of time uh, on my own. Uh, I had friends, but I, I, there was quite a lot of solitary time, and I did play a lot of characters mm. uh, and, uh, and play, as most children do, really, play a lot of imaginative games. Scott of the Antarctic, if there was a light layer of snow on the floor, I'd, I'd walk in ever-decreasing circles <laughs> until I died tragically. <laughs> <you know. laughs> Gene Kelly on the oilcloth in the kitchen. <laughs> uh, old man in the rain, I used to get a, a, sh a fishing basket. Whenever it rained, I'd get a fishing basket and I'd sit on it and pretend to be an old man looking back over the tragedy of his life <laughs> <laughs> without a fishing rod. <laughs> I mean, how did your parents and your brothers and your mates take your, what, your ambition to become an actor? Were they puzzled? They made per I think they all thought, what the hell yeah. is he going to do? And when I came out with something so outlandish and extreme as an actor, they went, of course. Mm. 
Do you know what I mean? Yes, it's like, great. Oh, of course. He'd, of course he'd do something that crazy. I mean, mentioning Albert Finney just now, and Saturday night, Sunday morning, which I know is a sort of seminal film for you. I just wondered if you'd rather have been born 30 years earlier and well, been like Finney and Tom Courtney, working with Carol Rice, Lindsay Anderson, Tony Richards, and all those people. I, I've, I've, I've thought that, actually. I, I, I do feel um, that had I been born at that time with what was happening at the Royal Court, mm. never mind in film, in fact, a lot of the films that were made at that time came out of what was happening at the Royal Court. Tony Richardson, the writer-led ethos. Yeah, I mean, that revolution mm. starting dating with um, Look Back in Anger had a huge impact mm. on my life uh, and created... But it would have been wonderful to have, to, have, to, have, um, to have worked at that time. I did work with, right at the beginning of my career, I worked with the great Peter Gill, who, uh, at the National Theatre Studio, um, who was around at that yeah. time and was, in fact, a friend of Anthony Hopkins. Well, very much part of that. Uh, yeah. But you've yeah. never worked at the Royal Court, I don't think. I've not worked at the Royal Which Court. struck me as, as strange. Yeah. I mean, you so sort of off a type to, to flourish there. Yeah, perhaps. but maybe I'm from, I, I, I'd fit the royal court mould of, oh, maybe, yes. of the 60s. <laughs> the 60s rather than it's got a slightly different ethos now. Isn't it? So you went to Central, you trained at Central and left, but I think the first couple of years out there were quite tricky for you. Yes, I was unemployed um, from 1986 to 1989. Um, I was very well cast at Central, in fact I think I got the best casting, and I did not pick up an agent or any interest, um, <clears throat> and that was a very difficult time. It was basically depressed in bedsits around North London. Um, that was my life, until I decided to pack it in and go back to Manchester, and I worked on the crew at the Royal Exchange, which was very useful, because you're right at the bottom of the food chain there. And you also get to watch actors, as I did here, doing the same performance every night. And you learn the ones who are still trying to keep it alive and vital and the ones who are just printing what they've done. And um, so, yes, and then Phyllida Lloyd, who is now very famous for the Iron Lady and... Uh, Mamma Mia. Mamma Mia. Um, remembered me from some showing she'd seen at Central and had heard that I'd just managed to get an equity card by not completely legal means, it has to be said, which was the way it was done in those yeah, days. I didn't strip, though. Oh, I did strip, actually. I stripped at the, uh, the, um, the Slade School You're of an Art. Artist model, yeah, I was you? an artist model, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I, I was cast as Pablo Gonzalez in Streetcar Named Desire, so I dyed my hair and grew a moustache. And, uh, and then within... From it was feast to famine. It was famine to feast, really, because within a year of getting a start, I got the lead in Let Him Have It. And at that time, as today, really, there were very few British films made, and that gave me a name. Mm. And, and really, I've been able to work ever since on the st a stroke of luck, really. But what kept you going during those years of you know being miserable in bedsits? How did yourself? Belief must have taken a terrible. It did take. Know. It did take a terrible uh, beating, and I was never a, a, a huge, and I'm not a, a, a hugely confident actor. You know, I, uh, it takes time for me to believe that what I'm doing is worthwhile. It did when we were doing Antigone. I had a, a really tough time in the previews, and in fact, on press night, you know, I was I was rigid with fear. Really, I was struggling. It was a big challenge for me. I've not done a huge amount of theatre. 
and to come out here and try it. Um, and I really struggled. And then on the Saturday matinee after the press night, something happened. All the work I'd done with Polly Findlay, who directed it, kind of came to the fore and I relaxed and I've had a good time since. Um, maybe, maybe the problem was, I don't know, but you were, the, the juve leads would have gone to other people, that you were perhaps a young character man. Yeah. I don't know if you admit of any of these terms are useful or not, but you weren't, you weren't going to be cast as the French windows, tennis rackets kind of it's, yeah. posh. Yes, it's true, it's true, yeah. I, I didn't quite fit into the leading man conventional, physically, I'm not conventionally looking at all. And I wasn't quite, yeah, the, the, the smaller character, so. But it was, a, it was personal development. I think that those two years, that's what I'd say to any student, really. You've got to really, really, really want to do this job because there is so much rejection and so much isolation. And those, those two years knocking around libraries and, and really, you know, having no purpose in life, um, probably, I think possibly if I'd have come out of drama school and got a nice job at the Royal Court immediately, I'd have felt unrealistically, you know, that this is going to all be, going to be fine. But to get that unemployment so hard and so heavy at the beginning means that I value every job I get. I was going to say, you'll never get blase about uh, working. No, 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 no. Um, now, let them have it. If people might remember, it was based on a real case back in <clears> 1952. The let them have it is an ambiguous, it might have been you or your character referring to your partner in crime to give over the gun he had to the yes. policeman rather than let him have it, i.e. let him shoot. Yes. And, but this, this came completely, I mean, they really took a punt on you, didn't they? You had no, hardly any film ex camera experience. I mean, yeah, they did. Complete uh, gamble. When I was cast in the film, I'd never actually been on camera. Um, I'd not done any television, but the, I was cast by an actor called Alex Cox, and Alex um, left the project and was replaced by Peter Medak. And I had this terrible thing of having ran, rang all my friends and family and said, I'm going to be the lead in a film. And then six months later, when Alex left, I was told that I'd lost the part. So I had to ring everybody and say, <laughs> I'm not going to be the lead in a film. And then Peter Medak made me audition again. And I got the job again, so I told them again. You know. <laughs> so that, but yeah, it's funny, but then again, that's the experience of an actor, you know. You get the keys to the kingdom, then they're snatched away, then they're given back, you know, you, and you're, you're a young man, you're, you're kind of... So how did you learn camera technique? How did you learn how to hit your mark? How did you learn how to, you know, break up a performance? Because you filmed out of sequence. All I of still them. haven't. Are you still <laughs> uh, I'm still trying. Uh, in those days, it's done differently now, but um, the focus puller, I'm sure there's people who know all this, but the focus puller would use a tape measure to measure the character's distance from the camera for technical reasons. And on the first day, when the guy came up with the tape measure, I thought I was in his way, so I just started backing across the room, <laughs> and his tape measure was unspooling. <laughs> until he basically said, no, you've got to effing stand, stand still. <laughs> So, I mean, you, I learnt... I do remember one moment where I was stood on a roof and the cameraman, without the camera, said to me, so you walk out and you're going to say that line, and I said it, and he was over here. And then he just started walking towards me as though he had a lens. And something in me made me wait until he got there, and then I spat the line out. 
so there, I think, was a, a, an illustration of somebody learning camera by, by doing technique. It. Because the camera basically are, is, is another character in the scene. You have to treat it like another character. And if somebody's here, you're not going to necessarily have to scream and shout mm. at them. So, well, Michael Caine talked, I don't know if you've ever seen his master class on screen acting. No. He talks about the camera as your best mate in the pub that you're having a drink with, you know, you're, you're you know, enjoying the crack together. Right, right. It, but as you say, close up, up close and personal, not yeah. fast and yeah. not you know, acting that smells of acting into it, because it can suss out anything yes, for it, can't yeah, it? Yes, yes, yes. Do you watch yourself? I mean, do you go to the rushes? No, thank you. No? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, no, uh, I did actually watch the rushes on, on uh, Let Him Have It, and that was probably a good good thing because I really thought I, I was you know indulgent is, you know to think you're terrible is just as indulgent as to think you're great but indulgently I thought I was terrible and I, I saw it the rushes for that and it was useful technically but I've never been since so because you, the confidence is too fragile and you're never going to be happy but that first time to see the rushes was useful because I thought no I saw everybody else and I thought, well, I'm, I'm, it looks like I'm in the same film, so that's fine. And I think about the same time you were in a Morse, I remember. I was, yes. Featured in that. So suddenly things began to... Uh, I mean, it's an extraordinary list of credits you have. You I mean, you, event television, you seem to have usually been somewhere in that. Mm. Um, I don't suppose you stop to think why, why you just say, thank you very much, I'll, I'll do I, it. Well, I know why, really. I mean, I, uh, I was... It's, it's my um, uh, uh, passion for the written word and for writers and for writers' position in this industry that I work in. I was a remedial reader at school and, and really struggled with reading. And then I got a brilliant teacher at my primary school and my reading age went off the scale. I left, I was 11 and I had a reading, reading age of 20, having been a remedial reader because I was terrified of one of the teachers. Um, and, and at the same time, I was absorbing a huge amount of British television, which was very writer-led. It was the Bleasdale stuff. It was the Dennis Potter stuff. Um, and, and lesser-known writers, those are the names at the top of the tree, really. And I was absorbing um, brilliantly written television, and television was my windows to the world. We didn't have a culture where we went to the theater. Cinema was expensive. I'd go and see the James Bond films, but I wasn't avid. So television was very important. And when I was granted a television career, I wanted it to be the television career. Um, I've, been, I've done some very irresponsible, poor American films, but British television, I've kept, I've ring-fenced, and I've tried. Blackout is a bit of a wobble, but that's not my responsibility. <laughs> we'll leave that to the director and the writer. Um, but uh, that aside, you know. Yes. So, it, I just have to mention the Paul Abbotts, the Jimmy McGoverns, Jimmy, the yes. Russell Davises. I mean, you yeah. are, you're, you, the best right for you, and you serve the best of writers, really. I, as a young actor, I was determined. I, I mean, I basically understand that you're, on, you're only as good as your writer. Uh, no matter how great an actor you are, if you don't have the words, you don't have the script, you're not, you know, the writers are the most important people in our industry, I think. We're well, still doing Sophocles' play 5,000 years later. You say, know. Yeah. Sophocles, you're still doing Now, tell us how that came about. Were you mm. looking to get back on stage again when the offer came through to do this? Yeah, I became a television and film actor by default because of Let Him Have It. 
that made me a film and television actor. My training at drama school, my three-year training at Central School of Speech and Drama, I never saw a camera. It was purely about theatre. And all I wanted to be was a theatre actor. Um, I didn't, we, we were very naive in those days. The television culture has exploded, celebrity culture has exploded. 83 to 86, it wasn't like that. What you dreamed of was getting a season at Stratford or at the National Theatre. Um, so basically, I've, I've not done as much theatre as I wanted to. And as a kid, on the council estate, in, I, I read about Olivier, I read about Gielgud, I read about Richardson. I, I, that was what I wanted to do, and, and, and I've left it a bit late, but now... Well, it's never too late. Yeah, well... <clears throat> Now that's going to be the mainstay of my career is theatre, so, I hope. So did you say yes, please, when the offer came through? I snatched the hands mm. off, yeah. I said <laughs> I'd come and tear tickets again. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about Antigone. I mean, it's called Antigone, but to my mind, it could equally be called Creon. In fact, aren't you on stage more often than Antigone is? I, uh, yes, I, I think that um, Creon probably has a bigger line count um, that, that's, that's Don Taylor's decision. Mm. I think he's foregrounded Creon as much as Antigone. But there's no doubt that it is Antigone's tragedy, particularly with the brilliant Jodie Whittaker. Um, but yes, it's, it's a lot of stage time, and it was a big step up for me, because for me, I, I've not done a huge amount of theatre. Um, so to come here into this space with that amount of lines and responsibility was... Was a, was a big step, but I've always liked having a gun to my head. Really. <laughs> well, that's right. Daunting but challenging yeah, at the yeah, same yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's too easy to say sort of Creon's the baddie, Antigone's the heroine. It's mm. a very subtle mm. debate going mm. on mm. in this play. How would you describe the, the two positions that they occupy? Well, it's as you said. Um, uh, Creon believes in the sanctity of the law and she is, she is challenging him with the idea of a moral religious law. Um, he is a leader in a time of conflict. Uh, we all know that immediately after a conflict has ceased, uh, that is when the country is particularly unstable. And he, and he, he uh, issues this edict that the corpse will remain unburied, kind of taking his revenge on a corpse, as Tiresias points out. It's kind of ludicrous what he's doing. Um, and interestingly, he is not challenged. Uh, and he addresses that. He, he announces this edict and he leaves a silence and nobody steps forward among his closest advisors and said this is wrong. And then the tragedy unfolds. The, tra the, the challenge is to humanize him, locate where this extreme vision uh, and this desire from con for control, because basically that's his problem. He wants control. And of course, as a leader, you need a degree of control. And I think with Antigone and, and Creon, there's a, that obviously it's rooted in there. They don't quite know themselves. They are not comfortable with themselves emotionally or sexually. I think both of them are... It, it, there's the, the, uh, the Shakespeare play, Measure for Measure, the conflict between Angelo and Isabella. I think Shakespeare probably read Antigone and looked at Creon and Antigone and thought, used it somewhat for Angelo and Isabella. It's I mean, I would suggest that Creon, isn't he? He's a safe pair of hands, because one's got to remember what's been happening in Thebes 
beforehand. Mm. Oedipus, Jocasta, mm. all of <laughs> and the, all of that goings on. That's right. And Jocasta's uh, hung herself. Oedipus is plucked out his eyes, gone wandering off. Civil war. Creon sees himself as the man of the hour, the man yes. to bring some stability to this society, that, surely. That's correct. And he addresses the problems of the family, which he belongs to, but he's, he's a minor member. He says, the man who puts the interests of his friends or his family before his country is beneath contempt. That's a barb, uh, Oedipus and Antigone's family for the way they've run things. Um, of course, another interesting thing about Creon is rather like Gordon Brown, for instance. He was second in command for a long time. And I, could, I think that can bank up frustration and anger and a certain insecurity, which can then infect, uh, it means affect that he, judgment. That's right. And he kind of makes a, a sort of resigning matter, if you like. This whole principle gets out of hand. That's right. Because yeah. he can't afford to back down and lose faith. Yeah, he, the, the very interesting thing about him is he feels if he backs down, he will lose his identity. He feels that if he says, I am wrong, people will crowd in on him and say, yes, you were wrong. But of course they don't. That's what we learn is if you, generally, if you, you, you show some humility, people, people accept it. But he do, he, emotionally, he is not equipped. That's the fascinating thing about playing him. He has a failure of the imagination. Emotionally, he is, he is, he is too tight, as is Antigone, and they, you know, yes. they get locked on each other. It's very personal, mm -hmm. very personal. What about the contemporary setting? I mean, we seem to be like a sort of chief, chief executive of a business or a, I thought of a, perhaps a Lord Mayor or some kind of civic leader. Mm. I mean, how do you, do you feel that the modern setting uh, goes easily with the ancient... Uh, you know, the, the play and the themes of the play? I think there are more gains than losses, mm -hmm. but, you know, when we start, when I'm there in the suit and the tie and I'm talking about the pantheon of gods, I can see that that can be quite challenging for an audience. Well, which god are they talking about? Do they really believe in this god? I think that's challenging. I think Sophocles, when he writes about um, Creon's misogyny, and I think there is a misogyny there. There's a terror of women, which becomes, well, it, it, it's always, misogyny is always terror of women, fear of women, I think, in men. Um, I think in this setting, if you're not careful, it can just, it can become um, simplified uh, into chauvinism. And it's a different, it's a much more primal thing than that. So you have to kind of address that in your performance. Mm. It, it, does that make sense? Mm. Um, so there are more gains than losses. I don't think I particularly wanted to come here and tramp around in togas, togas and sandals. <laughs> yes. um, uh, although, you know, I think there's a great deal to be said for abstracting a Greek tragedy and not locating it um, in any specific world, as Brooke might have done, for instance, in the empty space days, because then it becomes very elemental and, and it does become about even more about the people, actually. But it is fascinating, isn't it, that we're still, after all these years, you know, two and a half thousand years since it was written, still seeing these plays. I mean, do you know much about Greek drama? I mean, have you researched much in preparing for this, or are, have you done much before? Or I, I've never been in a Greek... I'd never done a Greek play. Uh, and, I, you know, at drama school, I'd done most... Uh, most of everything, really. 
I'd never been in one, and I, I didn't have a classical education, which I regret. Uh, so I knew very little about it. I didn't read the trilogy of plays. I do know enough that the, the character of Creon in the other two plays is completely inconsistent. He's a tool of the playwright. He's completely inconsistent with the Creon of Antigone. So I just concentrated solely on, Antig on the Creon of Antigone. Why do you think we keep <clears throat> returning to these plays? Why, are they, why do directors still want to do them? Why do audiences, because you've had terrific audiences for this, I know. Yes. Uh, why do they, what do they get out of it, do you think? Uh, well, we, I, I, what was wonderful about working on the play, particularly with this setting, it, it just felt to me like I was working on a new play. Mm -hmm. um, we approached it like a new play. I think for all the vastness and the complexity of the themes, Oedip uh, 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 Sophocles is basically writing about a dysfunctional family. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why we come back. Polly watched an early run and we were struggling and she said, what you long for when you're watching these plays, because of the size of the speeches and the theatricality and the themes, you long for small moments of, of humanity that we can so we can fasten into it as though these people were members of our own family. And the father-son mm -hmm. conflict, which we play out every night, is, is so familiar to us uh, mm -hmm. and is rooted in the personal but expressed through the political. I mean, going back to the television work, do you sometimes, I mean, the cliche is always sort of gritty northern drama. They've sent for Eccleston. <laughs> Um, as if there's not gritty southern drama or there's <laughs> not northern nice sort of suburban drama uh, yes, as well. Yeah, yeah. Terrible cliches about the different parts of the country. Terrible cliches. Um, but do you regret not doing or doing less lighter stuff, more comedic <clears throat> stuff than... Yeah, I, I, you know, the die was cast really with, with, with Derek Bentley because Derek is a working class uh, victim of limited intelligence and hugely anguished about it. And I became the guy who does that, you know. And if I'd have been a, I was very idealistic and I remain very idealistic and I just went after the scripts that I loved and believed in and I wasn't particularly mindful of the fact that I was getting, I was allowing myself to be pigeonholed. But that was the idealist. Mm. I'm glad that in a way that as a young man, I wasn't thinking, no, I'm not gonna do that because I wanna be seen like this. Mm. I'm glad I wasn't that careerist, and I hope you, all young actors will follow that yeah. uh, rather than that. Now, tell us about the shadow line, which was very striking <laughs> what <can I> tell <laughs> you? And, uh, and engrossing mm. and some marvelous performances. But half the time I did say, what the hell on earth is going <laughs> yeah, on? Yeah. Well, it's basically did the about, actors know? It's basically about pensions, isn't it? Right. Um, uh, do we know? Do we know what was going on inside Hugo Blick's brain? Uh, I know that he, he, Hugo Blick, who wrote the Shadow Line, lives in a windmill in Rye, and he, he writes right at the top of it. And he said that he had the whole thing planned out. Um, I, I felt I knew what was going on, uh, but well, I can't tell you what. <laughs> was going on. Well, I think it, it sort of humanised criminals, basically, mm. didn't it? it, mm. it yeah. A, it's a bit like, in a way, I suppose in British, it's quite a, a long, a hard, a high thing to compare it with, but Goodfellas, mm. Scorsese's Goodfellas, mm. you saw the sort of tragedy, and I suppose the Sopranos as well, you saw the, that these people weren't just crooks, they also had wives and mm. families, mm. And, but it was trying to work out 
particularly when one of the Quetzalcoatl Edua for, of course, he's has, has lost his memory, hasn't he? Yep. So he has to discover things anew about what the, what the person he was before yep. before the shooting. And then we had Stephen Ray brilliantly cast against type. It's this terrifying bogeyman yeah, figure. Yeah, yes. I mean, it was full of pleasures. Yeah. But I just felt a little glossary or a sort of a help <laughs> now and again. Yeah. Uh, but you mentioned just now that you've done one or two things in America that you're uh, not uh, proud of, you'd say. But yeah. surely, as an actor, you're you know you're available for hire. Should <coughs> should we be should we expect actors always to preserve their integrity and do? worthwhile subjects? Why can't they kind of relax and earn a bit of money now and again? Well, yeah, I mean, that, that you know, some of the films I've done in America, uh, I use the term lightly, films, uh, <laughs> uh, have allowed me to come back and uh, work for my favorite charity, which is the BBC. Mm -hmm. That's a... <laughs> I have to credit, that's a John Cleese quote. Very he well. refers to the BBC as his favorite charity. <laughs> Well, he's doing his sort of third divorce tour. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he should stop marrying all these women. About. Yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, that is. Do you feel? I mean, was it to, as you say, subsidise the BBC doing these? Could you? It was. A, you know, it was out. It came out of periods of unemployment, and actually, some of the films that I have failed so spectacularly in, there are ways to do them, and I, 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 I missed the boat, and there were some clashes with a couple of directors who, mm. who really lacked a bit of imagination. And so you're not, you're not backward in coming forward if you're not, not happy when you're working? Right? Mm, well, I, I, yeah, no. I, no, I, I think that uh, the creative process is, is, is collaborative. Mm -hmm. It's not dictatorial, and if anybody behaves like that, then yes, I will um, have absolved well, we it. What we, can I say? Exactly. We were talking earlier on in, in the wings about the Richard Harris's, the Peter O'Toole's, uh, the Richard Burtons, these guys, apart from their kind of social habits, they, you felt that making a film was a kind of macho contest. Mm, mm. You hear stories about them, kind of the way they behave, don't you? Yeah. Um, <laughs> have you ever come across, have you ever felt yourself being drawn into this kind of battle of wills with a director or another actor? No, it's an interesting question. I, I think, really, I was brought up in, in quite a macho um, culture. I was born in 64 in, in a council estate and, you know, grew up in, around Salford and Manchester. And I think I, I, I instinctively felt that that whole nonsense was wrong. And that, I think that's why I went into the, to, to, into the creative arts, mm -hmm. is to escape that straightjacking of men, straightjacketing of men and women. Mm -hmm. um, I, 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 I've not, not really experienced that level of machismo. Um, but it is, it is there on f in film sets, isn't it? it oh, power, yes. yes. People behave much better in theatre because there is less money available <laughs> and, and, and less power. You know, as soon as you get to Hollywood, you see these, a lot of very insecure people who are not in it for the art, they're in it to make themselves feel better about their terrible childhood, and they behave badly, yeah, mm. money and power. Mm. Uh, so it doesn't become about the art. You've, you've been cast a couple of times in American films as villains, haven't mm. you? But that not there a sort of pleasure to be had from that? If they allow you to do it the way you want to yeah. do it, which is slightly, Rickman does it the best, mm -hmm. you know, the Rick, Rickman's villainy is fantastic. Mm. It's tongue-in-cheek, it's mm. knowing, 
but you know, I did a G.I. Joe film and the director said, you've you got to play this guy, you know, straight like a psycho. And I said, it's patently not written like that. It's written like Austin Powers, this guy's supposed to be. <laughs> no, it was, you know, and it, it could have worked in that way. But he, he didn't, he, he just could not understand that you could, you could do that kind of dangerous thing, but with your tongue in your cheek. Mm. You know, he thought I was going to, this limey guy's coming over here, taking the mickey out of American culture. You know, I wasn't. <laughs> uh, so that kind of, that, that was very frustrating. Mm. Yeah, you know. so camp, camp villainy. Ca yeah, camp villainy. Brit yeah, Britons yeah. have always been good They'd at that. They still have had their explosions. They yeah, still have made their money. <laughs> and I'd have got to mince around for a while. <laughs> And I'm desperate to mince around. <laughs> if anybody's out there, now I must one ask, mincer. I, I don't know if you do. You mince "Song for Marion," which is your new film. No, "Song for Marion." Tell that, us about that. That was a. Uh, I got to work with um, two Te icons. Terence Stamp was my father, mm -hmm. and Vanessa Redgrave was my mother. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I play Terence's son. And unfortunately, we don't have a great relationship no. with a grit in the oyster of mm. that of that of that film, because his 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 parenting Terence's parenting methods were very old school, very macho, very distant, mm. and he's kind of the, the the character I play has suffered from that. He's very much his mother's son, very quite a gentle gentle mm. gentle guy. But it must be wonderful having two sort of sixties icons playing your parents. Yeah, yeah. I suppose, in a way, you're a kind of, you know, you can trace the Redgrave lineage. You could think, think of yourself as a sort of Michael Redgrave's grandson. Yeah, I could, yeah, I could, yeah. And, and, and I, will ne I, I had one scene with, uh, one scene with Vanessa Redgrave. Uh, I had a couple with Terence, but I had one scene with Vanessa Redgrave, which was shot in two shot, and we were like this mm. close. And it was a very interesting experience, because when I sat down next to her and we started doing the scene, she has this extraordinary amount of energy coming off her. And I also experienced her as being very, very generous as an actor. Uh, I've worked in America, and, and in, uh, not all American actors, but some American actors, the, the LA ones, where there's less of a theater tradition, there tends to be a glass wall between you, and it's like, I, we are playing a scene together, but I'm doing my bit, and you do your bit, and that's it, which is very much against the British tradition. But with Vanessa Redgrave, you know, I got, I really felt like she was trying to help me as much as she could, and God, did I need help um, to achieve the scene. It was a ferocious amount of energy, very interesting experience. Great, Bobby, look for, do you know when that's going to be released? In the autumn. And right. Terence Stamp is a very good table tennis player as well. <laughs> I didn't we played know a lot that. of table tennis. Well, I, I, Ladies and gentlemen, join me in thanking our special guest, Christopher Eccleston. Thank you. Thank you. Great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.